the outline there says, when sin brings suffering. Uh, This morning, I want us to answer a simple question. What should we do when when, when the sin uh, we have committed brings suffering in our lives? What should we do when we have committed a sin and that sin brings with it suffering for ourselves? It is the reality of our Christian life that we are still sinners before God. And many of the sins we commit often bring suffering in our lives. Not all suffering is caused by sin, we know that. But some, in fact much of the suffering, is caused by our own sin. If we steal money from the company, uh, we'll get fired and lose our job, won't we? And the stress of being jobless may bring additional suffering. If we are not faithful to our spouses, um, we commit adultery. It may result in marriage dissolving. And in marriage dissolving, we become lonely and suffer through our loneliness. You can see how sin often leads to suffering uh, in our lives. Now, we know that God always forgives us when we truly repent of our sin. But we also know that God does not always shield us from the troubles or the consequences caused by our sin. In fact, quite the opposite. God often, by his purposes, allows us to experience the full negative consequences of our sins. And he does that so that we, to use those troubles we are facing to, as it were, positively discipline us, build us up in him. That is actually how often God works. And we we see this actually amazingly in the book of Judges, don't we? Where often when Israel sins, God allowed them to face the consequences of their sin. And then through the discipline of those consequences, God then built them up and brought them back to uh, living, as it were, growing relationship with him. So the question is, how then, in in light of that, should we, as followers of Jesus, respond when we have truly repented of some sin we've committed, and yet we're still suffering the consequences of that sin? We need to know the answer to that question because, you see, if we react wrongly to the consequences of our sin, it may rob us of joy and peace in God. Most importantly, right, our reaction to the suffering or the troubles generated by our sin, which we have genuinely repented from, if we are not, that, how we react to that suffering actually reveals a lot about whether we have truly repented in the first place. So this is a very important question, right? And to help us answer this important question, we are looking at Psalm 130. Uh, Please turn with me there. Uh, We started, as I said, looking at this penitential psalm two weeks ago. It's one of the seven penitential psalms in the Bible. And that, of course, includes Psalm 51. But here in Psalm 130, the person here has sinned against God. And I said two weeks ago that this psalm, therefore, is teaching us how to respond when we sin against God and the consequences that our sin against God brings in our lives. The psalm is divided in two parts. Verse 1 to 4 uh, teaches us 
how we should repent when we have sinned against God, right? And as I said, we looked at those two verses, those four verses, uh, two, two weeks ago. And what we learned from those first four verses is that they show us what true repentance of our sin to God before God looks like. Uh, it starts with being troubled by our sin, that's verse one. And then when we are troubled by our sin because of the holiness of God and because of the consequences that our sin brings in our lives, it moves us to seek mercy and forgiveness from God. And we see that in verse 2 and uh, verse 3. And, and, and on to verse 4. And, and when we have received forgiveness and mercy from God, it enables us to break away from sin. So therefore, verse 4 tells us, doesn't it, that God forgives us so that it may be fear, so that we can live in fear of him, in reverent fear of him. That's why verse 1 to 4 teaches us how we respond to sin and respond to it with true repentance. Today we are looking, as I said, from verse 5 to verse 8. And what's happening in verse 5 to verse 8 is that the psalmist has already received forgiveness from God in verse 4. Right? But his situation has not changed. Right? So he starts verse 5 by saying, what does he say? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. And we immediately ask ourselves, why is he waiting on God for help? Well, because sin has landed him in a mess. Uh, He needs God to rescue him. The psalmist doesn't just want forgiveness from God. He wants God to free him or redeem him from the consequences of his sin. And so we come to verse 7 and 8, and we read this in verse 7. Oh, Israel encourages others, hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Plentiful freedom, we might say. And he will free, redeem Israel from all his iniquity. So when we look at verse 5 to verse 8, it is really answering our question today. What should we do when we have repented of our sin, truly repented, but we're still suffering the consequences of that sin? And I think this psalm gives us three answers on how we should respond. The first answer in your outline is that we must depend on our true God. We must depend on our true God. We must depend on Him, not on ourselves. Last week, the American celebrity Chris Tagen, I think that's how you say her name, right? Chrissy Tagen wrote a public apology for abusing, bullying, and trolling many people on the internet. The repentance, when you read it, I think she published on Medium, when I, when I read it, it seemed sincere. Uh, she said, uh, there is simply no excuse for my past horrible messages. I was a troll full stop, and I am sorry. But although some of our victims are forgiven, her, right, our career now seems to be in free fall. And so the question taken is facing is, how should you, she now deal with the consequences of her sin, so to speak? And here is her answer from the article of how she plans to deal with it. She says, I am going to keep working to be the best version of myself. I will continue to seek self-improvement and change. That is how the world responds to the consequences of sin. To, to, to work harder. 
To be the best version of yourself. If you're in a mess, you just pull yourself by your shoelaces. Well, the psalmist here says the opposite, doesn't it? Look at verse 5 again. How is he responding? He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Rather than googling, as it were, for help, rather than trying to make a better version of himself, the psalmist is saying, I am depending on God to help me. I am not going to lean on myself. I'm going to lean on him. He is my hope. But notice what he does not say. He does not actually say here that I will depend on God. He says, I will depend on the Lord. I am waiting for the Lord. Right? It's important to understand that he doesn't say God. He says the Lord. And the Lord is in capital letters. Why does he say that? Well, because the word Lord is the personal name of the true God, Yahweh. This is the name God revealed to the people of Israel. And God explains the meaning of his name to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, turn with, you can turn with me if you like to uh, Exodus chapter 3. Um, Exodus chapter 3 verse 13 to verse 15. It's on page 46. And here God is speaking to Moses in the burning bush. He says this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and said to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am as sent me to you. That's God's name. But read on verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, in capital letters, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. According to that passage we just read there, the word Lord there, notice in verse 15, means what it says in verse 13. I am who I am, right? And in fact, in Hebrew, they sound the same. And so the point that God is making to Moses is this, is that to speak of my name is to speak of who I am. The name Yahweh, therefore, isn't just a name, it's a revelation of the character of God. So, so when we go back to Psalm 130, and the psalmist says in verse 5, we go back there, he says in verse 5, I wait for Yahweh. I wait for Yahweh, the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, in Yahweh's word, I hope. What, what the psalmist is saying is, look, I am depending on the one and true God, Yahweh, because of who he has revealed himself to be, of, of, who he ha- of what he has said about himself, of what this name means. And the name Yahweh, of course, tells us that the true God, first of all, the true God has no beginning or end. He exists in the eternal present. He is forever 
I am who I am. He is Yahweh. The question young children especially ask often is, who made God, right? The answer is that God is simply is. He is the I am. He has always been and always will be. So you and I can depend on this God with our past and present and future suffering that is caused by our sin because God is always present, is always eternally present to help us. You don't have to worry about the future if you're trusting in this God because he's going to be there. He is the I am. The name Yahweh also tells us that the true God is self-existent. He does not depend on anyone for life or substance. He is the I am who I am. Everything needs something else, isn't it? We as human beings need the earth. You need the ground, believe it or not, right? If it wasn't there, you wouldn't be here, right? You need the ground, something to stand on, right? You need the earth to live on. And the earth needs the sun for life, doesn't it? And the sun needs a lot of energy, a lot of uh, hydrogen, we might say. And of course, hydrogen needs the laws of chemistry and physics, which are all created by our self-existent and self-sufficient God. We need God directly. The world we live in needs God directly. Everything needs God. But unlike the creation God has existed, God has created, God himself doesn't need anything. It does not depend on anything. Everything depends on him. He is the I am who I am. And so we can depend on this God to deal with any turmoil caused by our sin because God has boundless resources within himself to help us. The name I am also, the name Yahweh also tells us that God never changes. All life, you see, is subject to change. They say the only constant in life is change, right? But the true God is I am who I am. Not I may be who I may be. The true God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not need to become a better version of himself. He cannot improve on himself. And that means all the attributes of God, who he is, never change. His love never changes. His holiness never changes. His goodness never changes. His power, his wisdom, his knowledge, all of these things are always at 100%. We can depend on this God to deal with any affliction, any trouble. Whether they are caused by a sin or they are not. Because God is reliable. He is the dependable God who never changes. Finally, the name Yahweh tells us that God is sovereign. He is the I am who I am. That is to say, he is self-defining. God has no boss over him who defines him. No, God is his own boss. As I've said, everything that exists is created by God and continues to be sustained by the sovereign God. He governs the entire universe by his will alone. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, says this, uh, verse 28, he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, 
The Lord Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We can depend on this true God to deal with all our suffering. Whether they are caused by sin or not, because he's the all-knowing, isn't it? He's the all-powerful and all-present sovereign of the universe. And notice that the psalmist is depending on God here in Psalm 130, not only because God is a one and true God, but God is the God of Israel. Did you notice that in verse 7? Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in Yahweh, hope in the Lord. That's amazing, isn't it? The, the, the nation of Israel are to hope in Yahweh. Now, that, I said that's amazing because, again, there's a repeat of God's name there. And immediately we should realize that God, in fact, is nameless within himself. In his true essence of his being, he does not need a name. Because he's a self-existent one. So we ask ourselves, why then has God given himself a name, Yahweh, in the Bible? Well, we've said it's to reveal his character, but more than that, it's to reveal to Israel. He's saying, look, I am your God. I am your Yahweh. You can depend on me because I have bound myself to you. The name Yahweh is a covenant name that bounds God, that, that, that binds God to his people. The psalmist is saying, therefore, in verse 5, I am counting on God to help me with the consequences of my sin. Why? Because he is my Yahweh, my true and faithful God. And that's why in verse 7 he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in this God of the covenant, the God who has revealed himself to you. And you are sitting here this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, because you know the good news of the Bible. And the good news of the Bible is that Yahweh, the I am who I am, has come to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the biography of Jesus written by uh, the Apostle John, we read of an incident that took place when Jesus answered some criticisms from the Jewish leaders. We read about it in John 8, verse 56 to verse 58. In John 8, uh, verse 56 to verse 58, Jesus says this to the the Pharisees. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, listen to his answer. Truly, truly, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. And of course, they became annoyed. Because with those words, Jesus revealed himself as the God of the Old Testament who has dressed himself in human flesh to bring us to himself. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 20 to 21, he says this. He, Jesus, just remind you again, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. If you have repented of your sin and are trusting in Jesus, you you have left behind the life of dead works and are trusting now in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have abandoned yourself to Christ. You have the amazing privilege of having Yahweh as your true God in Jesus Christ. And this means that whatever helpless situation uh, you are in, whether it is caused by your sin or not, a sin you commit every day, you do not need to despair. You don't need to worry of your future. Because you have Christ now. As your Yahweh. We must depend on Jesus. Our God to help us with. Not only sin itself. But the consequence of our sin. Jesus is timeless. He knows the, every detail of your future. Jesus is self-sufficient. He never runs out of resources. To help those he has purchased by his precious blood. Jesus never changes. He loves you today as he loved you before the foundation of the world. He loves you today as he loved you on Golgotha when he bled and died for your sins. He loves you because you are his own precious child. Purchased by his precious blood. He still has the same love for you um, that he had when he chose those cruel Roman nails. To save you from your sin, death, and hell. So depend on the Lord Jesus. That's how you respond to to, to, to any suffering, in fact, in your life. Depend on him. Why? We must depend on him because he is our true God. That's the first thing we learn uh, from this psalm. The second thing, that raises the question, doesn't it? How do we do that in practice? How do we depend on Jesus in practice? When sin brings suffering. Well, we must depend on God completely. That's the second truth we learn here. We must depend on God completely. By completely, I mean we must totally surrender ourselves, not just the problems caused by our sin. You get that? You must surrender all of you to him, not just the consequences of your sin. This is what the psalmist is doing here. Look at verse 5 to 6 again. I wait for the Lord... My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Did you notice the constant refrain, my soul waits? The the psalmist has brought his soul to wait on God. All of himself he has abandoned on God in total surrender. He's not just saying, Lord, my problems are yours. He's saying, I am all yours. The dependence in this psalm is a dependence of a servant on his master. I say that because of verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. My soul waits for the Lord. Did you notice the word Lord there? And like in verse 5... The word Lord there is in small letters. Why is that? 
Because it's a different word. And the word for Lord in verse 6 is Adonai. Adonai means master, as we said two weeks ago. It is the same word used in the Bible for the head of the house, right? At this time in history, the master owned his servants or slaves. They were his household. He was responsible for them. He fed and clothed them. He protected them. The Adonai corrected them when they needed correcting. Their identity, therefore, the slaves or servants, was wrapped up in the Adonai, in the master of the house. So the psalmist is saying to God now, you are my Adonai. You are my master. My whole life is in your hands. I am looking to you alone. Completely looking to you alone. So this psalm is not so much about surrendering some areas of our lives, which we are tempted to do. It is saying we are depending on God, who God is. All, all of us, our entire being, our soul has abandoned itself to God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Again in verse 6, my soul waits for the Adonai, for Adonai. The picture, therefore, there is, is literally waving a white flag of surrender. Depending on God, I like to put it like this. It is coming to God and saying to him, Lord, my answer is yes. Anywhere you want me to respond to the consequences of my sin or anything else going in my life, the answer is yes. I don't know the question, but my answer is yes. Imagine if somebody came to you and says, you haven't even asked him anything, and said, my answer is going to be yes. Anything. You'd be amazed by that, isn't it? Because no one does that, right? But actually, that's what the Christian is meant to be like before God. We are meant to go to God to say, my answer is yes. It's not, just tell me what I need to do. You are my Adonai. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, my entire soul is waiting on God. I am completely dependent on God. And you know, when we are dependent on God like that, it results in two important things. First of all, when it comes to the issue of the consequences, the suffering that sin brings in our lives, it, 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 it leads to two things. First of all, we will be more willing to suffer any consequences that comes with genuine repentance of any sin we have committed against God. You know, many of us are willing to tell God we are sorry for our sin, right? But we are not willing to suffer any consequences of repenting of our sin for Him. We are not willing, for example, to make painful choices to get rid of the sin we have repented from. We are happy to tell God, Lord, I've repented, I repent of this sin, you know. I don't know, you, perhaps you looked at pornography or you, you swore at someone or you were very angry with your wife. Anything, right? You are very willing to say you're sorry to God. But you are, many of us are not willing to then live out the consequences of that true repentance. We are not willing to, we are just willing to say we are not willing to suffer for truly turning to him. We are not willing to, to make the painful choices, for example, that are needed to get rid of the sin we have repented from. We are not willing to endure suffering for the sake of our repentance. And that's why many of us, when we repent from sin, we never really change. Why? Because we're not genuine about the repentance. 
Some of us, we are willing to tell God we are sorry, but we are not willing to take steps, isn't it? To confess our sins, for example, to our family and friends we have betrayed. You may be a husband and you've been looking at the wrong things online. Repentance, how does repentance like that look like? Well, repentance, first of all, means repenting before God and then owning up to your wife. You've committed adultery. She deserves to know that. That's how it looks like. But of course, we're not willing to own up like that to our wives, are we, for those of us who are married, because we fear the shame and consequences that come to that. So therefore, the point is that if we are not depending on God completely like that, not only for repenting of our sin, but the consequences that fall out of our sin, then, well, it raises the fundamental question I raised at the beginning, isn't it? Is your repentance genuine? Well, the answer is no. It turns out you haven't truly repented for your sin after. Because repentance from sin is completely abandoning yourself before God. When we have true repentance of a sin, we are willing to endure the consequences of sin because God has our heart. And so if we have been hiding our sin from our loved one, we know we must come clean and embrace the pain and shame that comes with confessing that sin. If previously we've been engaging in some sinful relationship and we have now seen that that is wrong, then we must let go of that relationship. We must be willing to cut it off for Christ. Secondly, when we surrender our hearts completely to God, not only are we real about with our repentance, uh, we will grow in patience rather than leaning on our own efforts. That's the force of verse 5 to 6. Look at verse 5 to 6 again. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Notice that the psalmist is waiting on the Lord. He just he can meditate on this verse all the time. Just what it means to wait on God. This is a picture of waiting on God. He's not taking shortcuts. He has not messed up and then decided, oh, I've got to try and fix this on my own by taking shortcuts with pragmatism. He's not trying to solve his troubles by plunging in new sin. No, he's patient on God. The picture of the security guards actually has been much meditated on in this verse over, over the last 2,000 years. The Lord has been written on verse 6. And as I thought about it this week, I think what I came to the conclusion is that this picture of these watchmen, these security guards, is really a picture of them not abandoning their post. They are waiting on God. They are sticking it out. The night comes with danger, doesn't it? But they are pressing on. Our confession of sins to others comes with shame and pain. Our dealing with the consequences of our sins always brings more, perhaps more suffering if we surrender ourselves to God. But we press on like the watchman. We are waiting on God. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. They have surrendered themselves to God regardless of the danger. Let me ask you a question this, this morning. Are you facing any trouble or suffering that has been caused by your sin? Is there anything going on in your life that has been damaged as a result of some sin that you have committed? Have you truly repented for that, of that sin before God? Genuine repentance? Well, if the answer is yes, 
And if you're not sure, then this sermon two weeks ago might help you, right? On working out what general repentance looks like. But if the answer is yes, then depend on God completely, beloved. Do not try to manage the consequences of your sin on your own. Follow the psalmist. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. Ensure that you have not only asked God for forgiveness, ask God to help you depend on him in how you deal with the fallout from your sin. And ask God for strength to take those difficult steps of ensuring that you do not fall again into sin. Depend on God. Sorry, depend on God completely. Now, now doing this is difficult, isn't it? And so God in this psalm has given us a reason why we, for us to do it. An encouragement, if you like. For us to, fail, to do that difficult thing of depending on him completely. And the, and the answer is we must depend on God because he redeems. And that's the final answer. The first truth is that we must depend on our true God. How? Truth number two. We must depend on our true God completely. That's hard. What's the, what's, what's the incentive? Well, the incentive is we must depend on our true God because he redeems. He redeems, and that's the third truth. The psalmist is depending on God completely because he's the one and true God of the Bible who is a faithful and loving redeemer. Look at verse 7. Oh, what a wonderful verse. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. We can spend the whole year just meditating on that verse. But I just want to say a few words on that. First of all, notice that you will know from your own experience that we don't use the word redemption often today in our society, do we? Uh, you don't use it in your regular talk. But we know that to redeem something uh, is, is, is to free something up, to set it free from somewhere where it's bound, perhaps. In the Old Testament, it was to free from slavery or to buy something back. Uh, we think of Boaz and Ruth, don't we? The kinsman redeemer uh, redeems, as it were, the family. When, when, when the psalmist therefore uses the word redemption, though, here, uh, the image I think he has in mind is less the Ruth, Boaz, right? I think he has in mind that always in the Old Testament, that seems to be the dominant theme, is, 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 the, is the image of the deliverance of God, the deliverance of Israel by God from their slavery in Egypt. Which, of course, we read about um, uh, in, in Exodus itself. And we read that, particularly in Exodus, that God redeemed this people, isn't it? Even though he knew that they would get into trouble. Why did God redeem them? Because of his loyal love. Look at verse 7 again. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is what? Steadfast love. The word for steadfast love there is hesed. Uh, it is used over 250 times in the Bible. And it is often translated as loving kindness or unfailing love. And the most important thing you need to know about this word hesed is that it is a special love that God bestows on his chosen people. And we read of it, it's the final reference in Deuteronomy 7. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 7, 
verse 6 to 9. God there um, explains, uh, really unpacks for us, this royal love to Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to verse 9. It says this, For you are a holy people, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Moses speaking, obviously. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And out of all the peoples who are on the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you, you see, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, listen to this, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and hesed, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment to a thousand generations. As we read there, we see that when God enters into this covenant relationship with these people, he's saying to them, look, I didn't choose you because of, because of anything you've done. I'm showering love on you because I love you. He showers them with his royal love, even though they are unfaithful to him. And so when we go back to Psalm 130, and we read in verse 7, don't we? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. We realize that what the psalmist is saying is that, look, we can depend on God, right? We can depend on this God because his redemptive love never fails. No matter how much we mess up, God will never forsake us. We don't have to be afraid of facing the consequences of our sin. We can completely surrender to God and ensure that our repentance is genuine, right? Knowing that this God is going to care for us. And knowing that not only is he going to care for us today, he will care for us tomorrow. His love and care for us doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. This is the incentive. And I think that's what he means when he says in verse 8, as we come to the end, he says, And I will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. What a wonderful phrase. I think what the psalmist is saying is that God redeems us from all our sins. What does that mean? He redeems us from the past sins, the present sins, and the future sins. And he's saying if we truly belong to God through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, we do not need to worry that God will abandon us to our sin and the consequences of our sin. Now we know the psalmist wrote these words Verse 8, before the coming of Christ. And so us though, we are reading these words after Christ. We will trust God in Jesus. Know the depth of meaning of these words. And he will redeem Israel, or God's people, from all our iniquities. And we know Christ redeems his people from all sin. What does that mean? Well, it's not just the past, present, and future. It is a threefold redemption, right? It is, it's like this. God, first of all, redeems us in Christ from the penalty of our sin against the Holy God. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, his death on the cross paid 
the penalty, paid the price to secure our freedom from the guilt of sin before God. Are you going through pain and suffering this morning? Go now to God and ask God for his mercy. God will hear you. Why? Because your penalty for sin has been paid in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus not only saves us from, not only redeems us from the penalty of our sin, he redeems us from a second thing, the power of sin. If we belong to Jesus, we are no longer slaves. Slaves of sin, death and hell, and Satan. We are now under the Adonai. He has broken the power of sin through his resurrection for us. Do you find yourself repeatedly falling in some sin? Well, go now to Jesus and ask him to help you live with the victory in Christ that he has already won for you. Finally, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, redeems us from not only the penalty of our sin, not only the power of our sin, but from the presence of sin and all its consequences. And we know this will be true, isn't it, when the Lord Jesus comes again in glory. Because the Bible tells us one day there will be no sin and its impact in our lives. One day there will be no more weeping. There will be no more suffering as a result of our sin. Because Jesus is coming to make this world new. Not just the world. We will be transformed to be like the Lord of glory himself. Because the Apostle John says, when we see him, we shall, when we see him, we shall be like he is. Jesus is coming to bring us into a new world where righteousness dwells. So we can count on him to help us with the consequences of our sin today. So I just want to end this morning by saying whatever trial you're facing, depend on our true God completely because he's your loving redeemer in Christ. Depend on him completely because he's your loving redeemer in Christ. Do not be content to go off with Christ. That's not true repentance. Abandon it all to him. Because he's your loving redeemer. Amen.